Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Anyway, I've got... I think we'll live. Your couch my, looks my, absolutely perfect. It does no, look like a nice couch. Good. I'm kind of yeah, jealous sitting in the hotel yeah. chair that you have that couch back there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't going to set up like laying on the bed though, so... <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Well, you want to get, let's just start recording. We already are recording. Hell, Zach, you snuck it in there. I didn't, yeah. I, I could, I could <laughs> have been up picking my nose or something like that. No, and you put it on camera. Um, no, I just got done doing I just did a set of pushups. That's why, that's why I was waving. I said, Hey, I got knock out a set of pushups. I'm still trying to get this 300 pushups a day deal in. So you get them in when you can. It was kind of funny. I was at uh, keto fest presenting and I had to keep doing pushups in the middle of the damn uh, convention hall. You know, it's got to try to sneak off in a corner and, you know, try to do that. It's a little embarrassing, but, just trying to show off. Well, I just started your presentation with 300 push-ups just to show. Well, show I can do 300 in a row. That'd be that, that, if I could ever do that, <laughs> I'd be pretty impressed. You know, the thing that, you know, because I don't know, I don't know, Bob, you don't, and I don't know, Zach, if you remember her, you guys remember Herschel Walker? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thousand yeah, so a he, day or something like that, yeah, right? He's like 1,500 push-ups a day every day of his life since he's been like 10 or some, something like that. And I'm like, I mean, I'm doing 300 a day and I mean, I can do them, but it's, it takes a lot of time, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, I don't know how he does a 1500 days plus, you know, sit-ups and, you know, whatever other jumping jacks and the other calisthenics he does. He must spend, you know, four hours a day doing bodyweight exercises and, and then the, what's else is left. I don't know. Hey, Bobby, thank you so much for coming on. You know, we've had, you know, quite a few people. We've had Joel Saladin on. We've had Alan Savory on. We've had, you know, a number of different ranchers uh, uh, in the industry. And I think it just, you know, to get this message out there is so, so incredibly important. And, and one thing, you know, just talking to you at Paleo Effects a couple months ago, I mean, you're in, you're in the set, you're part of the Savory Institute, you're on the ground, you're, you're, you're seeing the day-to-day stuff. Um, and I know when we had Alan on, everybody wanted us to get Alan on, but, and, and, you know, when Alan comes on, he's, he's such so big picture and so sort of philosophy and, you know, we try to drag out well, what's the real deal here, Alan, and it's hard to get that out. But I, I want to I want to go into a lot of stuff because I learned some stuff about like satellite imaging and all this crazy technology that's out there that's really pushing us. Because what I hear all the time from people is, well, you know, it's regenerative agriculture is nice, but no one's going to do it. They're not going to wide scale adopt that. It's impossible. You can't feed people doing that. So I want to I want to delve into that if we can and talk about what we could look like if we invested the money in that and if we had the willpower to do that. And so. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, Bobby, and then let's get into whatever you think people need to know, because I think this is, this is something that's going to be very helpful. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, you know, it's great to be on here. And, you know, my background specifically, I actually kind of uh, touch on both of your worlds. I, I don't know, Sean, that you know, uh, but I actually came from the ultra running background. So Zach and I have that uh, awesome. common background. Um, you know, that was probably a good uh, 30 or 40 pounds ago for me. Uh, it's been a number of years since I've been putting in the ultra mileage. But um, yeah, back in the day, I was um, 
I was a biomedical engineer, used to work for the Food and Drug Administration, you know, reviewing clinical trials and, um, you know, making sure that medical devices uh, for the cardiovascular system were safe and effective before being sold on the marketplace. Um, so a lot of, you know, uh, critical thinking as it relates to uh, health and wellness. Um, while I was there, started um, running ultras. And as I was running ultras looking for a competitive edge, I found the paleo diet. Um, as I was starting to get into the paleo world, started looking for better sources of grass fed beef. As I started doing that, started learning to meet farmers and ranchers in my area. I was actually living in the DC area at the time. Um, and so, you know, Joel Salatin, you said has been on this podcast. Um, I started buying from him cause he delivers to the DC area. He's down in Virginia. Um, so I got to go visit Joel, see what his operation was like. I just started reading books, going deeper and deeper into the space and, you know, at one point, I uh, stumbled upon a TED Talk that basically raised the premise that, you know, hey, grass-fed beef, livestock, there's more to it than just your personal health as an individual. The way that these animals are raised can have a profound impact on the land. And, you know, so me as an individual who was focusing on my own personal health and my own personal wellness and athletic performance, I realized, oh man, everything that I've been focusing on has been very selfish and egocentric. What I really need to be looking at is the larger picture of these choices that I'm making, not just how do they affect me as an individual and my own personal health, but how does that also tie back to the planetary health piece? You know, you can have something that is 100% grass-fed beef, which is great for you as an individual, but how that animal was managed on the landscape can be totally different. It can be managed properly so that you're regenerating an ecosystem, or it can be managed poorly so that you're degrading it. And I think that's a piece that, um, you know, was really the light bulb moment for me seeing Alan Savory's TED Talk of, of realizing, wow, um, you know, I can be supporting these types of uh, agricultural practices that are better for the land, better for me, better for the animal, you know, just the whole triple bottom line across the board. Um, I can be making these decisions three times a day with the meals that I'm putting in my body. Um, and so that was a really profound moment. And so, um, you know, that was probably back in 2013 when Alan's uh, Ted talk came out and, uh, you know, a few years later I was able to make the plunge and, and leave, um, that career track and make my way into the nonprofit agricultural space. So yeah, I'm with the Savory Institute now and I'm our director of, development and communications. So I lead all of our fundraising efforts and all of our communications and marketing. So I kind of wear a variety of different hats, touch on a lot of the scientific pieces and the technical aspects. Um, you know, it's uh, the, the piece that I really appreciate is just being able to take this work, which, you know, on the surface level, it is very complex. I mean, like you said, Alan has been on this podcast. And when you get talking to Alan about holistic management, you know, holistic management, it's a decision-making framework where you're evaluating the different ecosystem functions and blah, 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 blah. It, it, you can go really, really, really deep on this stuff. But ultimately, we need to land this for everyone around the world who's coming about it from different perspectives, whether it's from, you know, uh, uh, in a human performance piece or whether it's a mother who wants to put the best thing possible into her child's body and leave the best planet possible for her child or, you know, looking at, uh, you know, governments that have climate change targets that they're trying to hit. The way that we treat our global grasslands ties back to all of these different individuals. And so it requires different types of messaging and different perspectives. And that's kind of the role that I start to dive into and in figuring out, okay, 
this is applicable to everyone because ultimately if you want a planet to live on, you need to give a damn about our grasslands and how they're managed. Um, so how do we make that uh, attractive to the everyday consumer so that they are voting with their dollar in support of holistic management, regenerative agriculture? Bobby, one kind of question I have, because I think like something that resonated with both Sean and I, when we talked to ranchers and talked to, you know, Savory and, uh, and Salatin was that, you know, our, our ranching population seems to be getting on average older and older, which uh, can look really daunting for any, any sector of the economy or business when, when your, your average age worker or gets, gets too high up. It's almost, it's a sign of the die of it dying. Um, mm -hmm. but one thing I also notice is when we talk about the younger generation, uh, most likely like the millennial age or even younger is this kind of more, uh, mindset towards, we need to start protecting the planet. We need to start taking care of the things we need to start doing things the right way so that, you know, we don't pay the price for it. Our kids don't pay the price for it. So there's actually, you know, a place for them in the future is are you seeing momentum from that group in maybe getting back into what we would consider agriculture the right way or some holistic management practices in terms of the older generation or the younger generation like maybe you say like a new crop of younger folks getting interested in in holistic farming that would maybe otherwise not have gone into the more the more standard practices that we currently have yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, Alan developed holistic management back in the 60s, originally in Zimbabwe. So he's been banging this drum for a long, long time. Um, Savory Institute was founded as a nonprofit in 2009. So we've only been around for a decade as a nonprofit. In that period of time, we have influenced the management of about 25 million acres um, so, you know, that's a fairly significant amount of acreage. Um, I think in hectares, since we talk globally, that's probably around 10 million hectares. Um, and then if you look back at prior to the founding of the Savory Institute from 2009, all the way prior to when Alan uh, started the, the estimates, um, that he and others, um, who have been around in the space for a long time have given have been about 16 million hectares there. So in total, those that have gone through holistic management training or are practicing holistic management, and yes, I recognize that there are other forms of regenerative agricultural practices, but you know, we as the Savory Institute focus specifically on holistic management. It's about 26 million hectares that have been influenced um, you know, in the history uh, of this, and you know, about 10 million of that coming from Savory Institute's global network over the last decade. So you know, it was kind of slow going for a while as Alan was, you know, out there as an individual, um, you know, kind of going on one-on-one -on -one consultation gigs with people, teaching people holistic management out there, doing field trials, refining the methodologies and figuring out exactly how to make this land with folks. Um, as time goes on um, and people started seeing results, uh, I think that really speaks volumes for a lot of people. You know, it's one thing to talk philosophy and talk theory to folks, but to actually see results. And once their land starts producing more and it's healthier and more resilient and they're able to raise more animals and make more money as a rancher, um, that becomes harder to ignore. And so I think Alan was really fighting a 
uh, a very significant uphill battle for a long time in this space, you know, just, you know, head down, pushing forward, showing people that we need to think holistically, we need to be making decisions holistically, we need to be, you know, honoring the recovery rates of our grasses when we're out there grazing them. Um, and we're at this point right now in 2019, where it's finally starting to happen. And I mean, Alan's 84 years old and I'm, I'm so thankful that he's still here and able to see this, you know, becoming a thing, people actually caring about regenerative, you know, talking about it. You've got big multinational corporations that are starting to not just put marketing dollars behind this, but to actually go back and revamp their supply chains to like put their money where their mouth is. So I think we're starting to see a turning point in the movement now that we have created what's starting to become a critical mass of people that are interested in it, that are knowledgeable about it, um, that there is enough of a supply such that big brands can get involved. Um, but it's been a long time coming. Um, and the types of folks that get interested in this and that are behind holistic management, like you're saying, is a lot, a lot of times is the younger generation. And I think that is because the younger generation hasn't been mired by decades of the conventional quote unquote wisdom being forced down their throat and, you know, buying into a system that is not working in their favor. The younger generation with the the, the access to information that we have these days are able to explore new ideas and concepts and get exposed earlier in the process. Even if they live in a remote region of the world, I mean, you know, Saber Institute, we have 43 different hubs around the world at this point that are all regionally located training farmers and ranchers and pastoralists in their communities. And so there's a good chance that if someone is in agriculture, there's a way that they can find people in their local community who have some sort of exposure or experience to this. Um, and then of course, you know, with the internet and whatnot, there's additional things that you can learn from come and listen to podcasts like this. So we're reaching a point where the younger generation is getting excited about this and they realize the potential. Um, I think the younger generation also, we have this, uh, we have the, the information, but I think there's also um, this responsibility in terms of the planet that we have been handed down you know, from the boomers that you know, is essentially the environmental costs have been totally ignored over the past 50 or so years and we have just been handed this shit show of a planet where atmospheric CO2 is at 415 parts per million and, you know, all the increased uh, wildfires and droughts and loss of natural, natural resources. Like there is tremendous responsibility and weight upon the younger generation to do something. And so that's uh, you know, thankfully people are stepping up as kind of a, a follow up to that. You know, I've been, for better or worse, following some of the, the political debates and commentary and stuff as we get closer to another election. And, you know, this topic of kind of a, a Green New Deal and regenerative practices has actually started to kind of pop up. And I think at this point, you know, if we look at just the talking points of like a Green New Deal, it's very kind of undefined at this point. It could go a lot of different directions. So it's really hard to say like yay or nay in terms of your support for something like that. Uh, but I did actually hear, you know, regenerative agriculture or regenerative soil practices be introduced as uh, at least a part of that process from a couple candidates so far. 
And I'm just curious if you have any insight as to like, what is, uh, what is Washington trying to do or uh, do they have, are, is the Savior Institute and guys like Joel Salatin, do, do they have the ear of some of these politicians in any way that would maybe be influential down the road? Well, you know, Savory, we're working on the global scale. So we try not to get involved in politics because if we get involved with U.S. politics, we also got to get involved with Zimbabwe politics and Argentina and Norway and Australia and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we're a, a, a team of 12 located in Colorado with, you know, limited bandwidth. So we're doing what we can to, to really get, uh, ch- you know, t- to spread impact as far as we can. Sometimes that is at the political level if opportunities present themselves. I know that some on our team have, uh, you know, testified on the Hill, um, you know, to talk about holistic management. Um, I myself have been in touch with three different of the Democratic candidates who are running, who have a um, regenerative ag uh, piece in their policy. So, you know, I have been introduced to them in various ways um, and been talking to them to educate them that, hey, regenerative agriculture is not just a a single sided issue. You know, this is truly a bipartisan issue, Um, you know. I talk about regenerative ag and, and grazing really being uh, relatable to the boots and the Birkenstocks. You know, if you're a rancher, you should care about this because it's going to improve the health of the land. You're going to be able to raise more animals. You're going to be able to make more money. It's better for your community. You don't have to talk climate change at all. You make more money. That's what you should care about. It's jobs. You know, it's, it's landscape resilience. If you're, you know, on the other side of the aisle and you care about, you know, climate change and progressive politics and whatever it is, well, fantastic. We've got a solution that's going to provide nutrient-dense food. It's going to, you know, uh, mitigate climate change. It's going to do all these things. And so it's appealing to both. It should be a bipartisan issue. And I think that's why, you know, given the, you know, drastic state that we find ourselves in with agriculture in the States and elsewhere around the globe, um, I mean, you look at, uh, you know, the Pentagon came out a few years ago and said that climate change is the greatest threat to instability in the Middle East, because that's where, you know, all the, the refugees happening from Syria and whatnot, that's all climate refugees. It's people who have lost the ability to exist on their current land. And so they're fleeing and trying to find existence elsewhere. Um, you know, this is a very serious issue that we're, we're all dealing with and we should all care about. Um, and so it's nice to see the politicians paying attention. I still think they are trying to wrap their heads around what that looks like tangibly, um, you know, because we can say, hey, support regenerative agriculture, support holistic management. But then, you know, like, what does that mean? Um, I think the reality is, is that our agricultural system is insanely complex. It is designed to support large industrial agribusiness. And, you know, there are so many different ways in which the system fails our farmers and our ranchers who want and need to do the right thing. You know, whether that be, um, you know, through uh, crop insurance or commodity subsidies that drive the prices down, um, that uh, make it more um, attractive to send your animals to a feedlot or to raise, you know, huge monocultures of corn or soy or wheat or whatever it may be, or, um, you know, processing, you know, you raise animals, then you need to send them off to slaughter and get processed. Well, 
according to the laws, you have to have a USDA inspector on site at all times. And so that means the costs of a processing facility go up, which means only the big guys can afford to own processing plants, meaning the small guys have to then play in the big guys space. So the prices are jacked up. So often they're having to schedule the processing of their animals before the animals are even born. So they're being sent to slaughter at an inopportune time at a cost that's inaffordable to them. Basically, large agribusiness has set up a system. They have lobbied for it. They have pushed, uh, you know, from every angle to make it inconvenient for the small guys doing the right thing. Um, so, you know, in terms of what can be done to support regenerative, I mean, there's so much that needs to be done from so many different angles. Um, but ultimately, I think just awareness is the first piece. You know, people- Hey, Bob, before we get aware. into what we can do, I want to yeah. talk a little bit, you know, because we talk about potential, but let's talk a little bit about results because I think this is something, I mean, you know, we can talk about, you know, this is a potential. We can project how much land we could, we could regenerate and stuff like that. And it's all tends to be speculative because a lot of things have to fall in place that may not be able to fall in place depending on who gets behind it. But let's talk about some of the absolute results we have. I, I know I saw a study that came out of White, White Oak Pastures, I think, that uh, yep. was an independently verified study. I think is, I think that might be Gay Brown's property, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe not. But, Bill Harris. Uh, okay, Bill Harris. That's right. And then so tell us about what does regenerative agriculture look like in hard number results? What are we mm -hmm. seeing as far as productivity increases? What's going on with the land? Why do we want to do this? What, what is actually been proven to been shown to be proven. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of different studies that we could point to. Um, Dr. Richard Teague out of Texas A&M has done some fantastic research on holistic management and holistic planned grazing. Um, you know, one thing that I hear from a lot of people is, well, there's not a lot of, of science to back up Alan's claims. Um, and if you go and look in the literature and you search for holistic management, yeah, you're not actually going to find a lot. But if you change the, the terminology that you're searching and instead you search for adaptive multi-paddock grazing AMP, AMP, you're going to find all the research. Um, that's really because uh, Richard Teague, when he went to go publish his first paper, I believe in uh, 2011, um, as it relates to holistic management, he tried to publish it under the term holistic management and it wasn't accepted by the peer review board. Um, our theory is that the term holistic turned them off and it didn't sound academic enough. So he went back and he replaced the term holistic management with something a bit more technical sounding, adaptive multi-paddock grazing. And lo and behold, it was accepted and, you know, it was published. So most of the research on holistic management is under that AMP grazing um, acronym these days. Uh, so you'll find Dr. Richard Teague from Texas A&M. You'll find Dr. R uh, Jason Roundtree from MSU, Paige Stanley out of Berkeley. Um, there's a bunch of folks that have really fantastic amp grazing research showing the tremendous potential of ecosystem regeneration, not just in terms of the soil carbon sequestration numbers, which, um, you know, they're their results generally show about, you know, three additional tons of carbon per hectare per year by switching from a continuous grazing operation to a holistic management operation. So instead of just leaving your animals out on one single pasture the entire time where they can be extremely selective of the types of grasses they're eating, when they do that, certain grasses get overgrazed, other grasses get undergrazed, eventually, all the grasses start to die off, you get bare ground, it's not really good for the ecosystem. So what you need to do is you need to bunch them up 
herd them, move them regularly, kind of like herds of bison roaming across North America. That's essentially what we do in holistic management. Um, so when you do that, you get the, the soil results in terms of the carbon, um, in terms of improved water holding capacity. You get more grass growing. You get a preference for more perennial grasses over just annual grasses. And the perennial grasses have much deeper roots. So that allows them to be able to pump more carbon through the photosynthetic process down deeper into the soil. Um, you get improved uh, soil microbiology. Uh, I mean, there's a slew of different things that you can look at in terms of how does the land improve with these practices. Carbon is really the, the piece that I think most people focus on. And, you know, you were asking about uh, Will Harris's life cycle analysis out in White Oak Pastures. Um, that one specifically, this was conducted by an organization called Qantas International. They're a, a large scientific third-party verification organization that all the big brands use whenever they need to do something big and important. Um, and so they went out and they studied White Oak Pastures and they were really critical on everything what they do. They studied every input that goes into and out of their system. So they looked at things like what are the methane emissions from the cattle? What are the manure emissions? What's the transportation and the processing? And, you know, everything that happens on this piece of property, what is a potential greenhouse gas coming out of it? And then they looked at all the greenhouse gas that was being sequestered. So what was going into uh, plant biomass accumulation? And then what was going into the soil carbon sequestration? And what they showed was that white oak pastures, with everything that they've got going on, they raise 10 different species, you know, so they're raising cows and chickens and pigs and hogs and guineas and turkeys and yada, yada, yada. Like if it's got a heartbeat, Will is probably raising it. Um, and white oak pastures in everything that they are doing, they are a net carbon sink. So the numbers from the analysis showed that per every kilogram of meat, every kilogram of beef that they raise, it sequesters three and a half kilograms of CO2 equivalent. Um, now that is fantastic because that means that it is better to raise that beef than it is to not raise that beef because it's a sink. It is drawing more out of the atmosphere than is being given off. And that's fantastic. And then they took it a step further and they compared white oaks beef to a bunch of other different protein sources. They compared it to conventional beef they compared it to pork and chicken. They even compared it to the Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat, just because, you know, the, there's so much hype beyond those, you know, plant-based proteins these days. And so whereas White Oak Pastures beef was a negative 3.5, conventional beef, you know, typical feedlot, you know, that we find in the store every day, that was a plus 33. That was the most. That was the most environmentally destructive of all the different proteins. And then you've got chicken and pork, which I think were like a plus seven and a plus eight. You had Impossible Burger, which was, I believe, a plus 3.5 and Beyond Meat was a plus four. So, you know, you look at some of those and you're like, okay, well, yeah, Impossible Burger at a plus 3.5, that's got a lower footprint than conventional beef at a plus 33. But if you look at the totality of your options, the best option is still a beef option. And it's the, the negative 3.5 that you see in the holistically managed, regeneratively grazed beef coming off of that property. And that's, and that's also, if I remember Joel, I mean, he's doing it in absence of herbicides or pesticides. Uh, so you don't have the, yep. the, the runoff issues that you still have with monocrop and the stuff that Beyond Meat is obviously heavily going to rely on monocrops to produce their product. And so that's mm -hmm. also another advantage. But let's talk about, because um, this is something that, 
you know, we all want to help the environment. I mean, none of us are out here eating in a way that we want to destroy the environment. You know, we do, I do it for my health. And I think that's the number one priority that I, that I'm worried about. Absolutely. I think people should understand that first. And then, um, but, but when we talk about, um, sustainability and feeding a lot of people, uh, I know when we were talking to Joel, he said he, you know, his productivity was something like, I can't remember if he said 400% or 800% of what it could have been before based on the land he had. What kind of numbers are you seeing? Cause when you talk about the rancher that's out there saying, man, I've been doing, you know, cow calf, you know, off the feedlot for the last, you know, three generations. This is my granddad did, my dad did this, what I'm going to do. And you get into this thing where it's like, I got to make a change in decision. Talk to us about how much better potential yield that would be, because I just want to know, do we have a realistic way to feed a lot of people in a regenerative situation? Do we have the land mass to do that? Because that's one of the big criticisms that I always hear is like, well, you know, it's nice pie in the sky stuff, but you can't feed a lot of people that way. We always going to have to be uh, you know, doing the grain lot, you know, grain feed lot. And, you know, and my thought is, you know, even if at worst case scenario, you even regeneratively ran these animals on land before sending them to the feedlot, that would still be better than what we do now. So talk to me about, uh, talk to me about what potential is out there. Yeah. Well, you know, to the, I hear that question all the time too. And the unfortunate thing is I haven't seen a piece of research that concretely states it one way or another that, you know, proves the, uh, the modeling of this is what's possible with, you know, regenerative grazing practices at the global scale. And I think the reason behind that is because it's a really, really complicated question. Um, every piece of land is different. Um, every type of soil is different and at a different state of health. And so the, in terms of what is possible, who knows? Like that's impossible to say at this point. Um, what I do know though, is that those that practice holistic management end up seeing, I mean, our, our brand promise, if you will, is we say that you can two to three times X your productivity on your land. So, you know, if you're raising a hundred cows, you can raise probably between two and 300 if you start doing things properly. And not only are you going to be able to raise, you know, two to three times as many animals, but if you have any inputs coming into your system, you know, you're bringing in uh, hay to feed them over the winter, or you've got other things that you're spraying or this, that, or the other thing, it's a decreased reliance on inputs because you're going to be increasing the productivity of your land and extending the length of your grazing season. So most people that when they adopt these regenerative practices, they're extending their grazing season. They're doing that by managing in a way that's going to get a different variety of grasses, both cool season and warm season grasses, so that they've got a different mixture and diversity of stuff growing on their land. Um, so the increased productivity in terms of growing more grass and being able to raise more animals and then decreased costs because of less inputs, there's tremendous economic return at the producer level and, you know, um, uh, increased in production in terms of the animals that can be raised. If we then go and look at, you know, the, the question of, well, how are we going to feed the world? Well, first off, I would say we can't feed the world the way in which we're doing it right now, because the way in which we're doing right now is not factoring in the true environmental costs. And so this is not a sustainable solution right now. Growing the corn and the wheat and the soy and feeding it to third world countries, that's not a sustainable model. That is going to bite us in the ass very, very soon. The FAO came out, uh, I think two years ago and said, we have less than 60 harvests left based on our current rate of soil erosion. 
So that's less than 60 years before we can no longer produce food anymore. Like that's a terrifying statistic. So to those that say we just need to increase the efficiencies and ramp up and accelerate what we're doing right now, that is absolutely not the case. What I think we need to do instead is take all of the land right now that is growing crops to then turn into livestock feed, to then feed animals that are in contained animal feeding operations. We need to get away with that system, get rid of factory farming altogether, and turn the back to the grassland that it used to be. If we can take those lands and turn them back to grassland, and then manage those lands holistically to improve the productivity, and then take all the current grassland that exists and improve the productivity there, I think there's a strong argument that we'd be able to feed uh, the world with holistic management with, you know, on the 5 billion hectares of grasslands that we have. I mean, because ultimately, what's the statistic? Something like uh, 60% of global land is unsuitable for crop production. I mean, we're not going to feed the world on, you know, corn and soy if 60% of that land is unsuitable for crops. On that land, the only thing that we can produce off of it are livestock because they're the only animal that has that fourth chamber, that rumen, that allows them to digest the cellulose of grass and turn that infinite energy source from the sun into calories and nutrient-dense bioavailable foods that we can eat as human beings. Um, so, yeah, I think the question, um, if, if we improve the productivity of our current grasslands and then if we are able to convert uh, croplands that are going to feed, you know, going to make livestock feed. If we can turn that back to grasslands and manage that regeneratively, I think we absolutely could. Bobby, what about those that would say that, you know, that's, you know, that's all nice, but you know, we're going to have the technology soon and, and it's already out there and, and, and certainly will scale up. I, I'm sure I have no doubt about it for, you know, synthetic grown meat. And so now we don't have to have the cows. Now we just have, have to have a few cows, which we harvest their, you know, their cells from them, we grow them in a lab and, you know, we support that with uh, monocropped and, you know, maybe we can make it efficient and scalable and cheap enough and we can feed people that way and we can have, still have animal protein and meat, uh, although, although it's grown in a lab and we don't know exactly what it's going to do. But what do you, what do you think about the people that say that's the future? I mean, what is the downfall of that, that scenario? Well, I mean, that right there, I think is the prime example of reductionist thinking. It's taking all the infinite complexities of biological systems and ecosystems and reducing it down to saying the only thing of value that comes about from our grasslands is, is the food. Like the only thing that we should care about is the food that us humans can eat. When in reality, there are a host of ecosystem services that our lands and our ecosystems provide for us in terms of the carbon sequestration that it provides to keeping um, our atmosphere in balance, in terms of the habitat that it provides for wildlife in terms of the water holding ability that helps you know, prevent droughts and flooding. Um, there's all of these things that are critical pieces to all of our everyday lives, whether we realize it or not, that our, our grassland ecosystems provide. And for our grassland ecosystems to remain healthy and intact and balanced and well-functioning, they need grazing animals on them to support that function. Otherwise, the nutrients aren't going to cycle back into the landscape. The, the soil is going to die off uh, or the soil is going to cap and, you know, the, the microbiology underneath is going to die off and you're going to have uh, soil turned to dirt and it's just going to be lifeless. Um, I think 
by thinking of food production just in the form of the value it provides to us as an individual or you know as a species is very one-sided and egotistical and i think we need to take that holistic perspective and truly look at our place uh, you know in this global ecosystem there is so much complexity and so many different processes and if we are to remove grazing animals from grasslands which co-evolved together for millennia before humans came along and screwed everything up, it would just, it would create tremendous disaster at the global scale. So even if you choose to, to eat meat that is raised in a Petri dish, or you choose to eat plant-based proteins or whatever it may be, you should still, if you care about the health of this planet, you should still advocate for proper management of those lands and then come up with some other business solution that will allow those people that are managing those lands and those livestock to, to have a livelihood. The only way that I know of those grazing lands to be managed in a way that, that maintains the health of the land and also provides you know, a, a future and you know, a career track to be able to be the steward of that land is farming and ranching. That's the only way that you can do it. Yeah, I mean, some of the people that would advocate for a plant-based future will say, well, well, we, we just will let those animals be uh, taken care of by wild animals. We'll let the, the wild deer and, you know, the chipmunks and the squirrels do it. And I, I sort of say, who's going to who's going to pay for that? I mean, who's, yeah. you know, I mean, I just wonder, but so what do you say about the people that say it, it need to be, it just needs to be rewilded and we need to not, yeah. we need to not farm animals. Well, yeah, exactly. Who's going to pay for it? Because, you know, uh, yeah, there's 5 billion hectares of grasslands out there. Like, are you going to go volunteer your time to manage, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres that, you know, you have access to and you're not going to make a penny off of it because you don't want to sell those animals at auction or send them out to processing to make a living off of it. So, I mean, you know, the economic piece is one thing. Um, the, uh, oh shoot, where was I going? I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I don't know, the, 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 you know, the wild animals, the wild oh. animals playing together, the foxes and the bunny rabbits having the rewilding. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, the rewilding for that to work. What we need is we need adequate numbers of grazing animals and we need adequate numbers of predators such that you have the proper predator prey balance. That's, that's what used to exist for millennia when these all co-evolved. We had gray wolves out there on the prairies. There were bears on the prairie. There were huge herds of, of bison roaming around. And what the predators did is they kept all those grazing animals tightly bunched and herded and regularly moving around. Since then, we've domesticated most of our grazers. We've killed off most of the predators. And we've also put up a lot of infrastructure like cities and towns and roads and you know, everything else that makes it difficult for those ancestral migratory patterns to exist. So to just you know, kind of take a hands-off approach and let Mother Nature do its thing, it's not going to work because we don't have the sufficient numbers of predator and prey in the right balance for, for that predator-prey dynamic to exist. You know, it might be possible in some certain pockets where, you know, gray wolves have been reintroduced and, you know, you've got a bunch of grazing animals, like maybe you're going to get some dynamics of, of the, the herd impact happening, but those instances are few and far between. And when we're talking about one third of the Earth's terrestrial surface being grasslands, we are not going to be able to get to that just by taking a hands-off approach. As human beings, we are the ones who created this problem. And so it's our responsibility to get ourselves out of this problem. And we have the tools and the know-how and the skill sets to do it. We just need to show up and actually change our practices and take responsibility for what we've done.
Bobby, talk to me about the tools because there's some neat technology that's coming out that, that I kind of learned a little bit about from you guys. Can you talk about what's available out there to make this a reality for those, those ranchers and people that want to support this? What, what kind of stuff's on the horizon about how we can, you know, better, better efficiently do the, 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 the quote unquote management that, that Alan Savory likes to talk about? What, what's, what's out there that's exciting? Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on where you're coming from, whether you're a, a typical, you know, general public consumer, you know, your, your role in this is sending the signals to the farmers and ranchers saying, Hey, I care about regenerative agriculture. I'm going to buy these products. I want you to make more of these products. If we send those signals back to the marketplace, the agricultural community listens. I mean, they follow the dollar. And so if we keep voting in favor of conventional beef or plant-based proteins or whatever it may be, that's what we're going to get more of. If we decide, hey, you know, I actually care about having a planet to give to my kids because they got 60 years left before we can't produce food anymore, well, then maybe we should start voting with our dollar in favor of that. So on that front, um, Savory Institute has been developing a new program. Um, it's called Land to Market. And essentially, the Land to Market program is all about differentiating regenerative products in the marketplace. Because like right now, you go to the store, you want to buy a product that's raised regeneratively. How do you know what that is? Like, how do you know if that 100% grass-fed beef bar was degrading the landscape or regenerating the landscape? You really don't. Like, you, you know if it's grass-fed, you know if it's organic, you know if it's non-GMO, you know if it's, you know, animal welfare approved, fair trade. There's a bunch of really great certifications out there, but nothing really speaks to what happened to the land. What were the outcomes on the land? So land to market, we're going out there and we're measuring the health of the landscape and we're taking a holistic perspective, looking at a variety of different uh, ecosystem indicators, both above ground and below. Things like uh, what is the percentage of bare ground? Um, what is the plant species diversity? What is the water holding capacity? What's the soil organic carbon? You know, Looking at all of these things and then trending them over time, if it trends positive, that indicates that the land is getting better. If the land is getting better, that's regenerative. That's something you know you should pay attention to. Someone who is making the land better over time should be able to differentiate their product as such in the marketplace. And so that's the crux of our land to market program and what we're doing. Um, so there's a few products that are starting to hit the markets or that are already out on the market. Uh, we work with um, Epic Bar, uh, and they they actually had the first product in the space with the. The, the seal says ecological outcome verification. Um, you know, uh, you can start to see that on their beef sriracha bites and they've got a few more that are coming out. Um, there's some other brands like this new brand rep provisions. They are a, um, it's two savory hubs out of uh, Missouri and Oklahoma that have come together to create a brand. And so all the meat in this product uh, has the EOV ecological outcome verification seal on it. Um, but then we're also not just working in the meat space, you know, livestock creates so much more value than just meat. Uh, we're also in the dairy space where we've got wool, we've got leather. Um, so it's not just a food program. We're also touching on, you know, fiber lifestyle, outdoor space, all that. I'm just, I'll just, you know, the, the rep stuff I've had, then that's Trent, Trent Hendricks and I met, and yeah. he's a great guy. And I, you know, I look forward to working some more with Trent down the road, you know, for some other things we've talked about, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, and that's an important thing. You know, people talk about, you know, we hear in the vegans, I don't, you know, I don't wear leather or anything like that, but you got to realize, I mean, the cow is much more than just meat. There are, there are probably 200 or more products that every cow mm -hmm. is utilized produces. And so it touches our lives more than we think. And I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm like, if the cow's going to die anywhere for food, why the heck not use leather? I mean, it's a great product. You Absolutely. Know? It's going to last forever too. Right. 
it's kind of crazy not to not to, not to use that, particularly for eating. Why would you want to throw that stuff away? It's so valuable. But let's talk about um, the tools. You know, like I said, some technology because you talked a little bit about satellite imaging, and I know uh, Alan was talking, not Alan, uh, Joel was talking about some of the electric fencing uh, th- options that are out there. So let's talk mm-hmm. about some of the some of the new technology that, that ranchers have at their disposal. And then I want to talk about um, more about how I, as a consumer, you know, what, what things we can help make happen because, more, mm-hmm. you know, I agree that it's supporting these guys financially and tell them this is what I want. But I think there's, you know, like you said, there's issues with the processors. Maybe if enough of us were knowledgeable and motivated uh, that we could help maybe impact legislation that would make it more favorable, you know, for you guys that are doing it this way to, 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 to want to do it. Yeah. Well, so in terms of the technology, I mean, Here's what I'll say is to, to raise animals regeneratively, you don't need any technology at all. All it is is a mindset shift. It's changing how you graze your animals and how you plan it. It's saying, all right, where are my animals going to be? You know, how much time should they spend in this paddock based on how much grass is available and the types of grasses that are there and the rate at which they're growing because of the weather that we've been seeing and, you know, the, the quality of the soil, you know, what is the recovery time that's needed? So, you know, holistic management and regenerative practices don't require a lot of technological fixes to come in and do this. Really, it's just a paradigm shift in how you think and how you plan. That said, there are new tools coming out like you're talking about. Um, I I did not get a chance to listen to the podcast with Joel yet, so I'm not sure what he brought up, but you mentioned uh, fenceless uh, collars. I know that that's a technology that's coming about. There's a few different folks that are creating essentially GPS collars, you know, kind of like you have a dog that's, um, you know, uh, with a fenceless collar in your yard and they get a little beep and a shock if they go too far to the perimeter uh, boundary that you've created. Um, They're starting to create those for livestock herds, um, which reduces the need to put up fencing for your animals. Um, That's still pretty early days. Um, You know, they need to be solar charged since they're operating 24-7. I think right now they're only using them on goats. I think there's some problems like with sheep because they're so, you know, there's so much hair. Um, you know, the collar doesn't get actually to the skin to be able to send the right signals to them. You know, bison are massively big and I would love to be able to have, you know, that on bison. So you don't have to have all the crazy fencing requirements, which you need. I mean, bison require really massive heavy duty fence to keep them in place. Um, but you know, bison are very wild animals. So getting these collars on those animals is going to be difficult. You only manage them once a year at roundup. Um, so, you know, that's an early day technology. Um, I'd love to see where that goes. Um, there are now uh, planning technologies, you know, in terms of the planned grazing that we're talking about. There's some apps that are out there like Pasture Map and Maya Grazing, uh, basically where you can go out and, you know, do all of your um, grazing planning on your computer or on your smartphone. And so that way it does the calculations of forage availability and days rest that are required so that it, you know, it kind of takes some of the calculating um, out of there for you and you can keep track of your data a little better. So that's kind of exciting for some people that are more technologically minded and maybe have teams all over that need to share um, complex data sets with one another if you've got a large scale operation. Um, that said, I know some folks that are old school holistic managers, pencil and paper, they um, you know, are firm believers is the best option because when you have to sit down and do that math, you get a deeper understanding of everything that it is going on on your landscape. And so using technology, they, they feel can be a crutch and kind of a cheat where you don't really have the deeper 
understanding of everything. Kind of like the difference between, you know, some people will say taking notes on your computer, you don't absorb it as much as if you handwrite notes. Um, I don't know how legitimate that is, but I know there's some arguments in favor for it. Um, and then there's also satellite imagery in terms of like drone technology to fly over lands and, you know, using different types of infrared imaging or NDVI. Um, NDVI is looking at the vegetative um, productivity of the landscape based on the, um, the color spectrum that's being read off of the land. It looks at the... Um, you know, basically how much photosynthesis is happening on your property. And so whether flying over on an airplane or using Google's Landsat imagery or flying a drone uh, with certain types of cameras, um, you can get different types of resolution that shows you the productivity of how much forage you have growing on your land so that you can see with, you know, red, yellow, green, uh, spread out across your landscape, you know, where are the red spots, you know, this is the spots where you've got bare ground, where's the green, that's where you've got grass and, and you know, actual vegetative material growing. Um, so you can kind of get an idea of like what's happening and what's happening over time. Um, so that's coming about and I, you know, you're starting to see more and more papers showing up with um, that type of, uh, you know, more geospatial approach combined with the ground truthing of going out and doing soil sampling so that we can get better estimates of correlating, hey, all this stuff that we're seeing through airplane flyovers or through satellite imagery, what is truly happening at the soil level, not just like at the ground level, but at the below ground level. So we're starting to amass more of those data sets so that we'll be able to, you know, to make those correlations. Um, and that actually ties back to the, the ecological outcome verification, the, the methodology in our land to market program. You know, it's not just a tool for differentiating products in the marketplace, but as more and more producers around the globe start measuring the outcomes of their land using the standardized methodology, we're going to have the world's largest data set on grassland regeneration. And we're going to be able to then tie that back to all the different practices that people are applying to be able to look at the potential of truly what's going on out there. So, um, you know, it's, I, I think there's still a lot of research to be done. There's still a lot to learn about just biology in general. Um, but there's, you know, people are starting to pay attention to it. There's more and more research coming out. There's new tools that are coming about. Um, I know that there's folks, you know, out of Yale that are working on like new tools right now. If you want to take a soil sample and measure your soil organic carbon, you got to, you got to take the core, you got to measure it. Sometimes they have a big hydraulic press on the back of their truck that they drill out and then you got to send it off to the lab. And then, you know, you got to wait a couple weeks for your analysis to come back. Now folks are, um, the folks in Yale are building a tool called Quick Carbon where uh, you'll be able to measure it uh, using the brick scale. It's basically looking at the, um, the light coming off of the soil and you'll be able to measure that with your smartphone. So that's a new tool that they're working on right now. Um, it's not ready for commercial use yet, but you know, it's really exciting because if a farmer or rancher can just pull out their phone and then measure what's happening in their soil, that's going to be better information for them to know, hey, what am I doing right or wrong here? You know, the, this soil right here is rocking. This is great. I need to do more of this on my land rather than, oh, that other piece of grass over there that's looking like crap. I should stop doing that. So it's creating these more quicker feedback loops for folks that's more accessible, which is going to help them make better decisions. So, um, yeah, there's a lot coming out. It's actually pretty exciting. Hey, Bobby, with uh, regards to the ranchers, um, do you, or I guess this is probably the way to say it, like, if I were a rancher and I decided, like I listened to this podcast or I looked on the 
uh, the Savory Institute stuff and decided like, this is, this is the way to go. Mm-hmm. What is like step one in that situation for, for someone in that situation who has a traditional model and wants to kind of move forward into a more holistic management? Yeah. So for producers specifically, you know, the number one best thing to do would be to reach out to the local savory hub. Um, That's the whole premise of having a savory hub is that they provide training and support and education to farmers and ranchers, you know, around the world. And they understand the local nuance in terms of climate, geography, markets, society, politics, et cetera. You know, Savory Institute as a staff of 12 in Colorado can't go out there and say, Hey, you know, you guys, the Maasai in Kenya, here's what you should do exactly on your land. And here's the people you should know. And here's what you should do for your local markets, you know, to be successful. And then, hey, Gauchos in Patagonia, here's what you should know. And then herders in Norway, here's what you should know. Um, it's impossible for us to be able to, to say all of that and to know all of that. So the savory hubs exist so that they can take that localized informa- information and make it contextually relevant for the, the, the producers in that area. So, you know, the ideal scenario for a producer would be get in touch with your savory hub. Uh, we've got 43 of them around the globe, as I mentioned, and we've got about 10 new hubs coming on board every year as the network continues to grow. Um, if a savory hub is not available or you don't have the, the time or the ability to engage with a local savory hub, we've got online courses at Savory Institute's website that you can go through that run you through everything from the decision-making aspects of holistic management to the grazing planning, to the land planning, to the financial planning, to the biological monitoring. Um, all those exist. We've got eBooks. If you just want to, you know, get a quick read on, on what to do and kind of figure it out on your own. Um, and then there's of course, Alan's textbook called holistic management, which you can buy online. Um, and there's actually, we just came out with the new holistic management handbook. So two different books, their covers look kind of the same. The textbook is the theory behind holistic management. You know, it's, it really gets deep into the weeds on ecosystem function and decision-making and all that stuff. It's kind of the why behind it. And then the handbook is really the how to, Um, You know, it's worksheets and graphs and charts, and it's just step-by-step processes of how to implement this at the ground level. So I recommend folks getting both of those books together and reading them in tandem um, if they're trying to change. Bobby, I'm a a huge proponent of beef. I mean, obviously, (laughs) I eat a lot of it. I promote it. I think everybody should eat more of it at least. Um, and you talk about agribusiness, you know, and certainly we, yeah. there's no shortage of that in the beef industry. We look at Tyson Foods, we look at Cargo, we look at, uh, what is it, JS or JBS, the other food company, mm-hmm. the big processors. And, you know, when I look at, and I've actually inter- interacted a little bit with the NCBA, and I'm just wondering, you know, because they represent all of beef and they represent the packers as much as they represent the ranchers. And so, you know, there's kind of a, you know, maybe, maybe everyone's goals are not aligned. How does, how do you guys interact with NCBA or do you, or is that something that is maybe uh, delicate to talk about or what's their, what's, what's been their response to what you guys are preaching or do they even give you the time of day or what's the deal with the NCBA? Um, so we don't nec- uh, we don't have a specific relationship with the NCBA uh, that I'm aware of, at least. But I, I would say that we don't exist in conflict with one another. Um, I personally, of course, would like to see everything be 100% grass-fed, holistically managed, you know, EOV verified, you know, out there in the world. That would be my, you know, perfect ideal world. But the reality is, I think you alluded to it earlier, is that even if an animal is going off to be fed in a feedlot they're still spending time on pasture for the beginning portion of their life. 
And the way that that land is managed, the way that they are managed in that beginning phase of their life as a cow calf or as a stalker, um, we can have an effect on that management as well. And so even if someone is running a cow calf operation and then those animals go off to auction and go off to feedlot, we can still influence management at that earlier phase. And in doing so, we're going to create a more resilient landscape. We're still going to have all those climate change benefits. You're still going to be able to increase productivity for that producer who's raising those animals in that cow-calf operation. So, you know, just because the ideal is 100% grass-fed, you know, with no inputs, we shouldn't let perfection get in the way of good enough. We can make incremental change in a variety of different ways. I mean, we can do it at the cow-calf operations that are going into feedlots. We can do it at, you know, how are our public lands managed, you know, in terms of public lands, most of them, you know, have no animals that exist there at all. Well, why not give access to ranchers who need access to grass? You know, maybe that can help with fire mitigation. You know, one of my colleagues, Chris Kirsten, he lived in Paradise, California, and he is out there banging the drum about holistic management and getting, you know, producers and brands into the land to market program. And while he was out traveling for savory, his house burned to the ground. If that land would have been properly managed, you know, if, if they would have brought in, uh, you know, herds of goats for fire mitigation, you may have seen different impact on that land. Um, so, you know, this, this ties together from a variety of different pieces. It's not just large scale agriculture in the traditional fashion that we think of it. I think this can be applied in a lot of different ways. Actually, another way you had mentioned Trent Hendricks earlier. Um, he's the, the savory hub leader out of Missouri. Um, and one of the founders of rep provisions that brand I had mentioned, he's got a new project, um, that he is doing with a large solar company called Silicon ranch. And so Silicon ranch has massive solar fields, of uh, solar panels, uh, all over the country. And so Trent is piloting a new project with them, uh, actually in conjunction with Will Harris from White Oak Pastures um, in Georgia. And what they're doing is they are grazing livestock regeneratively under solar fields. So they're taking renewable energy, which normally you have these big solar fields. And what they do is they either mechanically or chemically treat the fields underneath the solar panels. So they're either mowing it and they're spraying it. Well, what Will and Trent have done is they've come in and they said, well, instead of physically or, you know, instead of mechanically or chemically treating these lands, why don't we biologically treat them? So instead of spraying chemicals all over it and destroying it or mowing it up, they're just bringing in their livestock. And now you've got renewable energy, which is great because, you know, that's what a lot of people are saying in the climate change space is we need to decarbonize our energy system. Yes, we do need to do that, but that's just stopping the damage that we've already inflicted. And then we need to heal what's already been done. We need to draw the carbon out of the atmosphere. And that's what they're doing with the livestock. So it's this kind of beautiful synergy of renewable energy plus regenerative agriculture all on the same piece of land. And I think it's just a great example of, you know, it's not just traditional agricultural practices that we're looking at here. There's a variety of different innovative way, innovative ways that are, people are starting to do. And I'm sure there's going to be much more into the future that we can all get behind. What, um, you know, what legislation, because right now we have, you know, massive uh, crop subsidies, you know, uh, people talk about ranchers being subsidized, but that doesn't really occur unless it's a disaster. I mean, they don't, they don't get money to, to raise cows. They might have cheaper corn prices, you know, for the feedlots and stuff like that. But what kind of laws would, would make this sort of thing um, more enticing to the average farmer? Um, I'm seeing things like, you know, maybe you get, 
you know, if you can, if you can demonstrate, you know, regeneration of carbon, you get some kind of credit, yep. um, maybe changing the processing laws to where, you know, mobile processors would be, you know, more accessible because I don't know if the USDA processing comes back from like the, the Upton Sinclair, the jungle days where, you know, people were doing all kinds of crazy stuff and maybe you could have, you know, I don't know what, what, what kind of laws would, would facilitate more people doing regenerative stuff. And if, if we could put it to the ballot and get people behind it, what, what do you think would, yeah. would be- well, the processing you mentioned? Yeah, I think that would be great. Um, you know, that is a bottleneck for a lot of people. Um, but I do think that the main point is that the scales are tipped in favor of, you know, the get big or get out, um, you know, commodity system. That's really what economically drives everything that's going on. So if we can rebalance those scales economically for producers and provide incentives for producers to do things the right way, I think that's going to start move things the right direction. So that would look like what you said in terms of if they can demonstrate regeneration, you know, if they can show positive outcomes, providing them some sort of financial incentive. Now that might be uh, carbon credits in some way, but you know, the carbon credit space as it relates to sequestration is kind of up in the air. There's a lot of academic debate because people have questions over the permanence of carbon in the soil. You know, you could have all these great practices where you're regenerating the land and sequestering all this carbon, but then say you pass away and then your kids decide to sell the ranch and then they develop it and they plow it up. All that great carbon sequestration you did can go away. So there's a question of carbon permanence that they're like, well, how are you going to provide value to something that we don't know is permanently stored away? Um, So there's like some academic and philosophical debate on that one. But I think if you adjust the viewpoint, instead of looking at just the carbon piece, which everyone is so singularly focused on right now, and instead take a more holistic viewpoint of full ecosystem health, looking at water holding capacity, uh, you know, the percentage of bare ground, how much vegetation there is, there's a variety of different things that you can look at that give you a sense, is the land getting better on the whole? And so if we can come up with some sort of evaluation of ecosystem health and incentivize farmers to utilize that, and it's done in a way that is accessible and scalable and affordable, um, I think people will get behind that. I think relying just on carbon might be a dangerous one. Um, That said, I know there are some folks that are doing some cool stuff. Um, There are Uh, two different groups that are working on blockchain uh, credits. Um, So basically blockchain valuation for improved ecosystem function. Um, There's one group that's called Nori, N-O-R-I. They are doing that in terms of carbon sequestration, putting that on the blockchain. And then there's another one called Regen Network. Um, And Regen Network is um, not just looking at, um, you know, what's being measured at the ground level, but they're building a really... um, cool and complex infrastructure that is using satellite imagery to verify outcomes of ecosystem health, um, you know, from a very holistic perspective. Um, so I know there's stuff coming, um, on the blockchain space for that. Um, as it relates to policy, I I think whatever it looks like, just something that has outcomes based incentives that can help the producer so that it can start to tip the scales uh, you know, at least level the playing field. Yeah. I mean, I see, it seems like a lot of the folks that are in the regenerative business, you know, the, 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 the ranchers that are doing this often go direct to consumer, you know, market. I mean, that seems to be, or at least, I don't know, maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe I don't know. Maybe there's, there, there are many that, that aren't doing that, but it seems to be that sense of play. Well, we talked about, you know, let's say you're just a, you know, the typical 
because there's like 750,000 ranches in the U.S. And, and, you know, the average herd size is like, what, 50 head or something like that, somewhere in that neighborhood. So you're one of those guys. You're, 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 you know, your family, you got a mom, you got a uh, cow calf operation. You're going to keep the, you know, you keep the animals for, you know, six, eight, 10 months, whatever, before you ship them. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is going to sort of, I mean, so you say maybe there's less input in that situation if they go regenerative. Um, and I don't know what the inputs would be. I mean, are they still using herbicides? Or are they still using pesticides because they're not growing crops if they're feeding them on grass? I mean, does it cost more in, in, personnel because i know one of the things uh, joel salen was talking about our inputs are people they're not you know they're not pesticides and so how did how does somebody like that say okay i want to i want to run cow calf and i want to do regenerative what are they going to need to add or are they going to need are they going to be able to have an advantage in that situation i mean it's going to look different from everyone based on where they are and what their land looks like i mean in holistic management we teach people to look at where their land exists on the brittleness scale. That's something that Alan Savory came up with. The brittleness scale essentially being what is the distribution of precipitation throughout the year on your land. So, you know, where Joel is on the East Coast, they've got year-round moisture. So it's green pretty much all the time. They can always grow stuff. I live in Colorado. It is not always green all the time. It is brown a lot of the time because we have a very distinct growing period and we have a very distinct dormant season. So the way you ranch or raise animals in a very non-brittle area, you know, it's called brittle because like you, you grab a handful of grass and, you know, you crunch it up in your hand. If it's green, it's fine. If it's brown, it's very brittle and it's going to break apart. That's what, you know, it's kind of a very arid, brittle area. Um, the way you ranch or farm in those areas is going to look very different. And so what the operation you run is going to look very different as well. On the East Coast, in these non-brittle environments or places that have a lot of moisture, yeah, growing, uh, you know, having a multi-species operation where you run all different kinds of animals and you've got crop production and you've got all these different integrated systems, that's going to be a really attractive model. It's going to be really productive for you. You come out here into the West or, you know, you go out into Mongolia or Africa or down into Patagonia, for example, in, um, you know, these like vast grasslands where it's just large expansive areas that can be very dry at times. Really the only thing that's profitable out there is going to be large herds of animals. Um, I know, so Savory Institute, were a 501c3 nonprofit. There is also a for-profit management arm of, um, that spun off from our organization back in the early days called Grasslands LLC. And what they do is large-scale land management um, using holistic management for, you know, um, large land bases. And so they got a couple properties around the world that are, you know, 50, 100,000 acre properties. And what they do is they come in, you know, with the investors, they buy this land and then they manage it to regenerate it. And then, you know, the livestock are kind of that continuous, um, you know, income that come off that for the investors. And then over time, they're improving the value of the land as well for the long-term return. Um, but the management itself it really isn't that complicated. If you got a 50,000 acre ranch and you run it as a single herd, it, it doesn't need but a few people to go on out there and make those moves and check on fencing. I mean, you know, once you get over a thousand animals or so, um, you know, it's pretty much the same amount of work no matter the size. And so you get a greater return off of a larger land base. Um, so it's not necessarily that holistic management is um, economically uh, more difficult to do. It's more, you know, you think about a, a large land base. If you had a hundred thousand acres that were being managed on a continuous grazing operation, 
yeah, you'd need a massive team of people to be going out there, checking on the animals all over. You got a lot of land to cover. You got a lot of fence to be looking at. You got a lot of watering points to be fixing. You got to have a team that is hauling their ass and busting their ass all day long. But if you run those animals in a very tight herd, that's all contained in one paddock, you have one watering point to look at. You have a smaller paddock to be monitoring. And then you just have your grazing plan where you open your gate and maybe you need to have some people on four wheelers or on horseback at the back that are providing some light pressure just to get the animals to move on to the next piece of grass. It's not very manually intensive to do so. And so by running a larger operation and a larger herd on a larger land base, you can do that with the same amount of people and get a better economic return out of it. Hey, Bobby, one of the, one of the sort of problems with uh, feedlots is, you know, we have animals that are, you know, often in close proximity and, and, you know, granted cattle are herd animals. They like to do that for defense. I mean, that's their natural environment. If you go to Africa and you've been to African, I've been to African, you see these wildebeest, they cluster together because they don't like getting eaten by lions. And so they kind of, kind of look out for each other. But one of the concerns with feedlot operation is these animals are at higher risk for communicable diseases. And so there's yeah. respiratory, respiratory illnesses. Why does that not seem to be, or at least my impression is it does not seem to be as much of an issue with a holistically managed uh, herd versus, you know, maybe a feedlot situation. What's mm -hmm. the difference there? Well, it's because they're moving. They're moving off of that piece of land. So they're getting a chance to get away from that and having that dung and urine reincorporate back into the soil. When you've got healthy soil microbiology, the dung beetles are going to come through and they're going to roll that up and they're going to bring it on down. The ecosystem is going to reincorporate it in a natural way. Um, and then, you know, when you've got folks like the Joel Salatons and the Will Harrises who have those multi-species operations, you know, they're doing things like bringing chickens into the paddocks after the livestock have been there. And so those chickens are able to peck and scratch and eat the bugs, which, which help to reduce the parasitic load. Um, so moving on from the urine and the dung so that they're not staying in it and stagnant for one long period of time, that helps, uh, you know, keep it fine and safe. You know, India, India has, I guess, the world's largest cattle herd, I think. I think they're at like 300 million of our 1.4 billion cattle um, that we have on the planet right now. What sort of, uh, I mean, you know, because this is, this is a global operation, are you seeing this sort of style of management being more uh, effective or more successful or more, I should say, accepted in other parts of the world? And where, where do you find that there's going to be really, really the real challenges might be? I mean, we see some significant challenges here in the U.S., I think because of large agribusiness and all the different vested interests. Um, it's really difficult to, to change uh, methodologies here, um, not just as an individual, um, but, you know, in terms of agricultural communities, if you're someone who's going to go out there and change what you're doing, you're really putting your neck on the line and create, making yourself a social outcast, essentially. So there's a lot of that at play um, versus you go to a lot of the developing world where you're dealing with subsistence farmers. They are just trying to get by. In areas like this, they don't, have they don't have the privilege of being able to question climate change or question the ethics of eating meat. For them, livestock are the only way that they can survive. 
and you know they are uh, feeling the effects of everything that we're doing here in the states and elsewhere in the developed world basically all the effects are being felt in the undeveloped world. Um, so for them, I would say there is greater receptivity. Um, perhaps it's a little more difficult in terms of uh, access to resources, in terms of being able to differentiate products and, you know, have a premium come for it. Um, but we do have, uh, you know, our savory hubs in Zimbabwe and Kenya and South Africa, for example, those all do a lot of work with communal farming, subsistence farmers. Um, and a lot of the work that they do is really community mobilization. So, you know, there's villagers who all have their own individual cattle. And so, you know, it's one thing to get some folks together and teach them the basics of holistic management. And Hey, here's how you plan your grazing and you plan for the recovery rates of the grass and match your herd size to the forage availability. Those are easy to convey to people, but to convey to folks and, and to get them to agree to, to work together with a communal grazing plan that everyone can agree on. Because in a lot of these places, it's if, if I don't go and graze that blade of grass first, you will. And so it's kind of that tragedy of the commons where we share this resource, yet everyone just destroys it because everyone's fighting for it. So there's this aspect of community mobilization that um, is required in more of the developing world. But thankfully, um, you know, there's some folks that have figured that out and they're doing it pretty well. Um, the, the three hubs that I mentioned in Africa are doing that. And we've got a hub in Pakistan. We've got one coming on board in India. Um, we've got one in Turkey. So, you know, we've got folks that are working at that level and figuring out how to get that through. Um, there's challenges anywhere you're trying to make change, though. So um, we're working on it. Hey, Bob, at the beginning, you talked about um, you know, how sort of in dire straits we have, we are, we're, you know, six, maybe 60 harvests away from, you know, the soil being completely collapsed. If we continue, you know, continue as we are, uh, is that worldwide or is that in the United States? And then the other question I would have is, you know, if regenerative agriculture or holistic agriculture, holistic graving, grazing can reverse that, which apparently it can, what percentage what would be the tipping point? I mean, would we get, if we got to 20% of our, our ranchers doing that, would that be enough? What would be enough? I mean, obviously the goal in your mind would be, Hey, let's have them all do it. But I, you know, as, as you, you know, it may not be an achievable goal, but what would be like, let's say we could get certain percentage enough to restore enough soil so that we could continue on for another thousand years as a species, you know, potentially. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, well, to your, to your question of is the, the 60 harvest left, that is a, a global number that came out from the UN's FAO, their Food and Agriculture Organization. So we're talking globally what's happening with food production, not just what's here in the U.S. Um, what would the tipping point be? Uh, one thing that's jumping out at me, there was a paper by Jason Roundtree and Richard Teague that came out in 2016 that said if we were able to apply these regenerative practices on just 25%, of North American grasslands and croplands, we would be able to mitigate the entire agricultural um, carbon footprint of North America. So, you know, 25% of our grazing and croplands, if we were able to convert them back to holistic practices, um, that would be a significant tipping point in terms of mitigating out all the, uh, the carbon footprint that we have. Um, I'm not sure what that would look like at the global level. It's probably something similar. Um, I think the reality is that we need it to happen 
everywhere that we can. Um, the Saber Institute, we have our, you know, our big goal is to influence management on a billion hectares. So, you know, there's 5 billion hectares of grasslands. Our goal is to, is to get 20% of that. Um, it's a massive, massive goal, a billion hectares, but you know, we think that's what's needed to, to really, um, you know, turn back the clock and give us the hope of a livable planet into the future. Where, where are those, where are those 5 billion hectares? Just, just from my own ed, ed, education, I know North America has got quite a bit, but where, where are we looking at? Are we looking at the Eurasian steppes or where, where's all the hectares yep. at? Yeah. I mean, you've got North America, you've got the Eurasian steppe, you've got all throughout Africa, you've got uh, vast areas of grasslands in South America. Um, there's a tremendous amount of uh, rangeland in Australia. Um, every continent, well, except um, Antarctica, has grassland. Um, you know, you kind of look at the global view. If you look at, um, actually, if you watch Alan's TED Talk, he shows a global graphic, which, um, you know, just shows a picture of the globe that we've all seen. And then he highlights in red circles, all the brown spots. And the brown spots are essentially all of the grasslands. Um, because, uh, you know, so the, the, um, the numbers are that one third of the earth's surface are grasslands. And then according to some estimates, up to 70% of our grasslands are desertifying. So they're turning to desert because of mismanagement. So, you know, it's a very significant uh, piece of landmass that we're talking about here. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage-breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. What's the uh, percentage? So, I mean, you said something like, again, at the beginning, you said something like, was it 10 million hectares or 25 million hectares you guys have influenced so far? So you're, you're, you're about 2%, 2 of the way there. You got, got a ways yeah. to go. Yeah. Um, are you seeing an acceleration in the rate of uh, conversion at this point? Does it seem like it's a slow, steady rate, or is it over in the last decade? Has it has it ramped up quite a bit? You know, yeah, the last decade has ramped up substantially. So you know, Alan's been beating this drum since the '60s, and it was slow going as a one man show. And you know, as he started with his earlier organizations, now where we exist in 2019. There's a lot of excitement between regenerative agriculture. There's a lot of people trying to, you know, plant their flag and, you know, be the next guru of grazing or whatever it may be. I don't care who's coming at it and, you know, what they call it. As long as you're out there doing the right thing to the land and you're helping change practices at the ground level, that's what we need. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely ramped up. Um, you know, we look at the... Um, you ever heard of the diffusion of innovations theory by Everett Rogers? It's a curve that shows like adoptions of new technologies, like when smartphones came out or whatever it might be. Um, I've looked at that before. And so, you know, it's basically got, you've got the, the early innovators that are like the first two and a half percent. 
And then you've got the next 13 and a half percent are the early adopters. And then you've got like 34% are the early majority. Then another 34% are the late majority. And then the last 16% are the laggards. Those are the people that just aren't going to change no matter what. Um, if we look at that curve and, you know, have the billion hectares as the, the X axis of what we're looking at, where we are right now at 26 million uh, hectares, we're, we're right at the cusp of the, the end of that first group reaching the second group. So we've gotten all the early innovators and we're now moving on to the early adopters. And so with every jump from group to group, things start to change a little bit and they start to speed up in terms of how they accelerate. So I think where we are right now after a couple decades of trying to get this out there, we're finally, you know, uh, we've, you know, reached the saturation point on all the early innovators who are just truly philosophically aligned behind this. And now we're starting to move on to folks that believe in this, but they wanted to see the proof demonstrated first. There's enough proof out there, both in terms of the results when you look at the before and after photos or the fence line contrasts from you know, someone to their neighbor or academic literature that you're looking at. There's enough evidence out there that people are like, okay, okay, I, I think I can get behind this and they're starting to follow. Once we move into the majority of the public or the majority of the land, the majority isn't really swayed by, uh, you know, philosophy or, you know, by the intent behind something, they change behavior based on the dollars and cents. They're really economically driven. So for this to really reach the masses, we're going to have to really change how our agricultural systems work and how our markets work so that economically it is more favorable for a producer to do this than it is to not. And that's really going to be the only thing that tips the scales, you know, massively in terms of, you know, where we are from a climate change perspective and where, you know, we need to, you know, you know, have a, you know, re reverse atmospheric CO2 and all that. The IPCC says we've got 12 years to, to make a change before the effects of climate change are irreversible. You know, we, we really need to accelerate this at, at, a, at a large scale. So to do that, the market forces, I think, are going to be a, a really huge piece. What do you think? What do you think that looks like? You know, I mean, because you say there's a there's obviously a you know a big agribusiness pro model right now. So, what specific things are causing that? What specific things would have to change for that to happen? What would be that seismic shift that would have to happen? I mean, what would you say say would have to be? Yeah. Well, when I say large agribusiness, I don't mean to imply that all big business is bad. I mean, of course, small producers, you know, local farms are, you know, the lifeblood of, you know, agriculture. And we need to support those guys and go to your farmer's market and, you know, shake your farmer's hand. That, of course, is necessary. But, you know, when you're talking about the general mills of the world, they have massive, massive, massive supply chains. And so if we can bring brands like that on board who have this massive power to, to change their supply chains and to make decisions and say, hey, all of you folks that we buy from, we need you to start you know, changing in this direction. The ripple effects of that can be absolutely huge. And so we're starting to see uh, brands of that scale. And I mentioned General Mills because they own Epic Bar. And so General Mills is, is learning about regenerative agriculture through Epic and through Annie's. And now they're making these commitments. Like I think they just came out with a commitment uh, within the past year saying that they're going to regenerate a million acres of land through their supply chains. I think that is absolutely fantastic. And so we need big business to start 
realizing the potential and the power that they have to actually be a player to make a difference um, in where we're going as a society and as a planet. Um, so it's going to take biz big business changing. It's going to take consumer behavior changing. It's going to take policy changing, like we were saying, to level out the playing field. Um, there's a lot that needs to change. Um, but we're starting to see that happen from a variety of angles. You know, like we've talked about politicians are talking about regenerative ag. Okay. Policies, you know, starting to get clued in. We're seeing the general mills of the world and the Apple gates and, you know, savory. We're also working with a uh, caring group. That's the large holding company for uh, Gucci and Puma and Volcom and Stella McCartney and all these other luxury and lifestyle fashion brands. They're, they're involved in our land to market program. You know, so we're starting to see business paying attention and wanting to put their money where their mouth is and not just have a good story to tell about like, Oh, look at this nice, you know, green pasture and a red barn and a smiling cow. But truly they are investing in improving their supply chains and they're investing in improving it for everyone, not just themselves, but you know, kind of taking more of a, a mindset where a rising tide lifts all boats. And if one brand can do the right thing, then all of them should be able to do it. Bobby, is that from from some of those early strides, like with the General Mills committing to the the million acres, uh, and then you know some of these other brands kind of starting to evolve a little bit? Was that originally from a legislative move, or has that been just them sensing the economic winds changing? I think that that is not legislative at all. That is coming purely from the marketplace. Um, that is, you know, General Mills learning through Epic Bar, uh, which is a company that they bought about three years ago. Um, we had been engaged with Epic prior to the General Mills acquisition and Katie and Taylor, who, who owned Epic, were very big proponents of regenerative agriculture. So they learned a lot about it through us and started improving their supply chains, getting a lot of their protein from the Savory Global Network. Um, as Epic was acquired through General Mills, they maintained, you know, they were very steadfast that they had maintained their sourcing um, integrity um, as they grew and they scaled out. So that meant, you know, you know, kind of retooling a lot of the processes internally. And so, you know, whereas a lot of folks thought that, you know, Epic was, was selling out by being bought by this large company, in reality, they were the Trojan horse who was getting into the, this large mega corporation and able to influence uh, you know, decision making all the way up to the chain, um, you know, within them. And it's, it's been wonderful to see. And now you're starting to see, you know, not just General Mills, but also, you know, Danone, Unilever, there's a lot of really big businesses out there that are very um, active players in the regenerative space when you go to these meetings. And so, you know, they're listening. And I think they realize that in the long term, the current practices that they've been doing are not going to cut it. Um, they have to adjust their supply chains if they want to exist in the long term. It's not just the right thing to do for the planet. It's also good business. Um, and you're, you're seeing that even from McDonald's. McDonald's is investing into some of the amp grazing research that's going on out there. Um, Peter Bick and the group out of ASU, they've got funding coming in from McDonald's supporting what they're doing. Um, Shell has a program called Game Changers and the Shell Game Changers program is looking at regenerative agricultural practices and what can be done. So you're seeing this coming from you know, a lot of, you know, what would seemingly be strange bedfellows, but I think what it means is that big business, they're, they're not dumb. They know what's going to happen into the future and they're trying to hedge their bets. 
And so they're doing their homework right now and they're making safe bets on the small scale. But I think as time goes on, you're going to start to see them wade deeper and deeper into this space and make even bigger financial and supply chain plays. Yeah, you know, we had a similar situation kind of described in one of our earlier podcasts with Mark Sisson because his uh, Primal Kitchen uh, branch of the of his company was purchased by Heinz. And yep. I think he, I mean, he, he certainly got some backlash with that with the folks who are worried like, oh, they're going to turn this product that he brought to market that was supposed to counter things like your typical mayonnaise and things like that. Mm-hmm. And they're just going to like more or less bastardize it. And, you know, we were talking about that and, and his message was kind of like, well, why would they do that? They already have that. Like they bought this so that they didn't have to develop something that the market was demanding that I brought as a way, you know, cause they have the money and the resources to do that as opposed to kind of start from scratch. Yep. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, you see, big brands buying up the small ones who have integrity. And they're doing that because the big brands don't really have the capability to take on the risk in the, in the, you know, the startup phase. So they pay very close attention to the brands that are doing things differently. And then once they have, you know, uh, gotten to a point of comfort and they're like, okay, Epic has grown to be big enough. They've got enough of a demonstrated market that they've shown that it can be done, that you can have, you know, you know, values in your supply chain. Great. That's something we need to learn how to do at the large scale within us. Let's learn everything we can from you and bring you into the company. Um, so, you know, you start to see that happening more and more um, with the small guys that have integrity in their sourcing or in the quality of their food. Um, you know, once they have proven themselves to be successful enough, that's when the big guys want to get involved because they want to take those lessons and apply them elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing that, you know, in the, uh, you know, the Beyond Meat, the Impossible Burger, you know, people are attracted to, you know, there's restaurants that are, that are adopting it. We see Carl's Jr. and we see Burger King. We see some of these other companies mm-hmm. are, that are featuring it on their menu. And they're doing that because they're, they're, they're doing that because they believe that people want to help the environment. And that's why they'll, they'll support their chain or, or their product. And, you know, I have problems with that because it's basically processed food. But if you have the same thing, which is only even better, like mm-hmm. as you pointed out, the White Oak Pastures, the Epic, the Epic folks, they are actually rebuilding the soil. They're, 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 you know, you know, not just detracting less, but they're actually improving things. And then they have the EOV or, or the or the mark on there. That would be a huge selling point in my view, because not Absolutely. only am I eating healthy food, but it's also now restoring the environment. So hopefully, we'll see more in that, and maybe you'll, maybe you'll see restaurants that will say. Like I saw Arby's was like, no, we're not going to go the fake food. We're, we're going to make fake, fake meat vegetables kind of kidding around. But I mean, honestly, to see somebody like that, like one of these big chains say, okay, we're going to buy uh, 20% of our, our products going to come from EOV type places or, you know, eventually hundred percent if it's possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that has the potential to be tremendous. And that's where like the guys like me and, and the normal consumers can, uh, can hopefully impact things just to let those companies know we would support you more if you did something like this. Yeah, you know, like the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Meats, I, I think the intent from some in that space, you know, the, the people that are buying that product, you know, the people that follow, a, a, you know, like a vegan diet, for example, a lot of times they have the right intent in terms of why they're making these decisions. We're just coming about it with different information. Um, and I think really the differentiation point that really needs to be focused on is that, yeah, an impossible burger is doing less bad than a traditional conventional beef burger. 
now that that new report came out showing that the methane emissions from fertilizer production are 100 times more than what we previously thought, that life cycle analysis might actually be different. And so they might need to retract that and change their statistics. But um, essentially, the, the premise of saying, okay, well, I can do less bad by making this purchasing decision. I think people need to realize that they can go a step beyond that they can do actual good in their purchasing decisions. And that's where the regenerative space comes in. It's changing the decisions we're making from, go, from saying, instead of doing less bad, I'm going to do good. And I think that's what we all need to be doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and, and that's like I said, and, and I know you and I have talked you know, behind the scenes and I've got this animal-based nutrition network, you know, yeah. which is hopefully going to get the, that's going to come out soon. And I know you've got a list of producers that are, producing regeneratively produced meat for people that want to have that. So I plan on having that up on the website for people that want to know uh, how to get, you know, get meat that's making a difference. And I think that's incredibly important. And hopefully many, many people will support that. Bobby, I'll tell you what, it's wonderful talking to you. We learn a lot. Um, It's, you know, it's exciting to see this sort of flourish and, you know, you know, I'm fully behind us, you know, as much as I say, just eat meat more than anything. And I tell people to start with that. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, when we look at the bigger picture, this is so important. I don't think there's another solution uh, out there. And I'm sure you would agree. I mean, as far as what we can do with agriculture, we have to rebuild our, our landscape. Absolutely. Yeah, this is, I think, the single biggest issue facing all of us, um, whether it be a climate change issue, a food security issue, a water issue, a climate refugee issue. All of this ties back to how we manage our grasslands and all of us make, uh, you know, uh, have a piece to play in this fight three times a day when we vote with our dollar. And so vote with your dollar in favor of regenerative products. Look for the EOV seal on products. If you're a producer, learn holistic management, get involved in land to market, you know, support folks that are doing things the right way. Talk to your local politician and tell them to get behind this and to help farmers that are doing the right thing. Like it's a bipartisan issue. We need this. We can do this. There's evidence for this. And it's the only thing that's going to create a livable planet into the future. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Bobby. It was great to have you on the show. And it'll be a a great add to the Alan Savory, Joel Salatin ones that we've had already. So um, thanks again. All right. Appreciate it, fellas. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.